So what's your pet peeve? Let me tell you mine. Um, And in a group this size, almost certainly many of you do this. So I'm going to violate rule number one of sermons, which is don't alienate part of your audience before you even start. Certainly don't do it over something silly like one of your pet peeves. But here's my pet peeve. You're sitting in traffic. Folks are getting on, and they run it right down to the end of that merge lane before they force their way in. I just, I'm like, we're waiting in line. You can wait in line too. Just, you can ask Jill. I just get more and more steamed. And, you know, the only thing that's worse is the guy who's already in line and then jerks out to the right and blasts by about 15 cars and then stuffs back in. And I just, oh, I'm about to go nuts. And between services, about 15 people pointed out to me that actually the traffic engineers have designed that lane to go that far and people should use it. I understand that. I don't claim... I don't claim this is rational. It is just my pet peeve. I just steam. And the only thing that's worse, and this one is illegal, so I can be self-righteous about this one, is the emergency lane. You know, the whole point of the thing is so that the people can get by and can fix whatever's caused this traffic jam. And so when people are shooting down that thing, then I am just about to blow. And I was on I-66 heading out. I had jury duty about three months ago, trying to get out to the courthouse, and we're stopped dead. Um, Right in front of me is a police cruiser. And I'm just sitting there, and by the way, like, Six different people were checking their text messages in the middle of this. And I'm like, he's right there, people. You don't do this. But, you know, somebody about 15 cars behind me, I see my rearview mirror, can't see the lights. She's got a low car. She pulls out, blasts the emergency lane, and I'm like, justice. (laughs) And he shakes his head and yanks out and pulls her over. And I go by going, yeah, yeah, you got it. (laughs) Finally, this is the way the world should be. Because I love to complain and to grumble about people who get up to the front. It just, I love, it bugs me. I love to complain about it. And truth be told, almost every one of us loves to grumble and complain a whole lot more than we realize. If you don't believe me, ask your spouse, or ask your kids, or ask your coworkers, or ask your friends. When it really comes down to it, in fact, complaining for most of us, many of us, if not most of us, has become such a habit that like most habits, we don't even know we're doing it. But complaining is many of our favorite pastime. You know, another example, we are going in about a month down to North Carolina for a wedding. We were trying to find a hotel in this town we've never been to that we could stay in. Have you ever read the comment sections online? Like the Google reviews? I mean, complaint after complaint after complaint, and even the good ones are probably written by the hotel staff, so you have to kind of get rid of those. And, and you realize it's not a comment board, it's a rant board. I mean, and I know stuff goes wrong, but just come on, it just gets excessive. And truth is, we'll complain about almost anything. The traffic, the weather, my family, my kids, my spouse, my job, my coworkers, my school, my health or lack of it, my wealth or lack of it. You name it, we can complain it. And in, in, in the face of that, well, let me say one other thing, by the way. It's a really easy conversation starter, isn't it? Have you ever noticed that? The easiest way to start a conversation with somebody you don't know is to complain about something because you instantly establish common ground. <clears throat> in D.C., it's the traffic. 
It's the cost of living. It's the stress level. And psychiatrists and psychologists have even documented this, that you get a better conversational response if you lead with a complaint than if you lead with a positive statement. Um, Michael Cunningham, I think it was, a psychiatrist at the University of Louisville, just put it this way. He said, humans are a squealing species. And verse 14 of the scriptures here tells us, cut it out. Just don't do it. Verse 14 says, do everything without grumbling or disputing. That's the ESV translation. NIV translation, do everything without complaining or arguing. It should be almost self-evident that we are clearly not living after God's heart when it comes to our complaining habits. But now here's the point. Here's the thesis this morning. If I tell you, just stop it, it isn't going to work. Now, it should. Verse 14 is remarkably clear and categorical. We should just stop it. But if you say, just stop it, it ain't going to happen. I guarantee you. If you don't believe me, try it. Tell me how long you make it. Instead, we want to build into this passage and dig into this passage to ask three questions. First, why do we complain? Second, how could we really stop? And third, what would it look like if we did stop? So, why do we complain? How might we really stop? And what would that look like? Why is it, to address the first of those, that we complain? Why is it? Well, there are many ways to answer that. You can talk about family of origin issues. You can talk about unmet expectations. You can talk about jealousy. You can talk about the strange idea we have that the world's going to be fair. You can even talk about things like control. You know, sometimes you, you roll into work late, maybe because of traffic, maybe because it's your fault, and you start complaining about traffic. Because what does it do? It excuses being lateness. Or you, you complain about how much you have to do because everybody says, oh, well, that, it's a way of making everybody else think you must be important. There are any number of things we can do that, that we, why we complain. But let's draw out two others of them that we should challenge ourselves on. One is this. People say, and this is one of my besetting sins, just confession time, is people say, well, I'm just telling it like it is. Now, I was a management consultant before God put me in ministry, and as a result, it's like I just can't quite turn it off. I used to re-engineer companies and processes for a living. And so we're getting takeout, or we're at the dry cleaners, or we're at CVS waiting in line for a prescription and I, like, see 30 or 40 things that they ought to be doing differently. And I'm like, you need to do that different and that do it. And, and it's just, this is just basic customer service, and this is the way they ought to do it. And if they did this, things would work better. And I'm just telling it like it is. This is the way a business should run. Except, let's be honest, we're really doing something much more creative than just telling it like it is. The other one we often say is, well, I just need to vent. I'm just venting. Well, maybe but probably not. And certainly probably not to the extent that we then go on about it for the next 45 minutes. You know, venting is really just a a polite word for what? Complaining. No, we, we really love to complain. Why do we do it? Well, let me suggest, and in this let's start building into this passage, that there's actually an underlying reason working in and through all of those other reasons about why we really complain. And to get this passage, I stared at it for a long time until I finally realized the key word to understanding the passage we're looking at today. It's the first word in verse 12. 
therefore. And we finally, I finally realized we're only getting in the section we read today the punchline. We're only getting the application. In fact, to really get what's going on, the word therefore says that the reason for everything Paul's about to tell us is what he just said. It's the things he just drew out in verses 5 to 11, what James preached from last week. And that's where all the power is. That's where the principles that drive this are. That's where the thing that could really get us to understand what God would have for us resides. And we've got to understand that. And if we do understand it, then, therefore, verse 12, we'll get the applications that Paul's making here. So let's back up. What was the point last week? What was the point of verses 5 to 11? It was all about humility, right? Listen to verses 5 to 8. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross." When it comes right down to it, why do we complain? We complain because we've got a real humility problem, or more precisely, a real lack of humility problem. When it comes right down to it, whether we say it outwardly or inwardly, we're pretty convinced that we're actually a pretty big deal. And we are actually really important and really relevant, and if the rest of the world would just see it like we see it, they would understand what a big deal we are. And we grumble and we complain because we think... We think that we are better than what's going on for us. We think we deserve better than whatever it is that has caused us to start complaining and grumbling and arguing. Here's an example. For many, many years, this church would every Saturday send a team up to work on a Habitat for Humanity house um, in Sandtown, Baltimore. I, can't, I don't even know how many we built over the years. And you'd drag yourself out. You'd get here at, I can't remember if it was maybe like 5 or 6 a.m., probably 6. We probably weren't that crazy. You'd drive an hour up to Baltimore to work in a house and try to do some good. And I remember when the folks at Sandtown Habitat for Humanity turned the warehouse operation over to local folks. Now, they did it for a very good reason. The whole point was to train people from the neighborhood with marketable job skills. So... They took folks from the neighborhood, remember, who don't have the skills to run a warehouse, put them in charge of running a warehouse to deliver to about 15 or 20 construction sites simultaneously on a Saturday morning. And predictably, what do you think the outcome was? It was an utter debacle. And so we're sitting in this house, and quite a lot of us, having dragged ourselves out, having gotten up there, knowing we could do a bunch of other things with our day, cold in the middle of the winter complaining, including yours truly. Why can't they get this right? How hard is it? You know, we got up here. If we don't have lumber, we can't build. Don't they understand how you should treat volunteers? This is no way to get people to come back. Grumble, 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 complain. We just really, when it came down to it, thought we were worth more than that. Our time was worth more than that. Our circumstance, if they understood, you know, what we were giving up to be up here, our, you know, we had a lawyer over there, we had a doctor over there, we had the consultant whining in the back, that was me. You know, they would have, they would have understood that we were more important than this. When it really came down to it, why did we complain? Because we thought 
We were better than that. We deserved better than that. And truth be told, when we complain like that, what we're really doing is building ourselves up. What we're really doing is subtly implying, whether we know it or not, that we are worth more than that. And what we're doing is fishing for somebody to validate it, right? Because what's everybody else going to say? Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, you're right. Now, they actually don't believe it, by the way. Um, you know, we're not near as subtle as we think we are. But it's a whole lot easier just to validate you in that and let you have your gripe than it is. It's a great friend who will actually look at you in the midst of that and say, do you realize that maybe you're the problem? Do you realize that maybe you shouldn't complain so much? Do you realize maybe something else is going on here? It's a real rarity. Because in fact, usually, we complain because we think a lot of ourselves and we think of ourselves a lot. The exact opposite of what James was preaching last week about what biblical humility would really look like. So what have we said? Most of us, whether we recognize it or not, have a complaining problem. Why do we do it? Because we have a humility problem. How might we be different? What might it look like? How might we be different? Well, again, the point we made already, complaining is the surface-level sin. Grumbling is the surface-level sin. And to say, just stop, isn't going to cut it. Because if you just try to gather up all your willpower and commit to just stopping, you'll make it for a week or two, maybe. But it won't last, because in fact, gospel change in our behavior almost never in fact, probably never, happens by sheer force of willpower assenting to some principle. Gospel change in our life doesn't work that way. Gospel change in our life works when the truth of the gospel, who we are and who Christ is, works its way into our hearts at the level of this deeper sin, the question of our impression of ourselves. So just stop isn't going to cut it. Instead, what we need to do is we need to sort of reset the picture Get a different picture of what's going on here. And in fact, this passage gives us precisely the resources to do that. What is it that precedes this therefore in verse 12? Well, in fact, it's immediately preceding. It is not even what we just read. But instead, it's verses 9 to 11. Listen to this. Therefore, God exalted him, that's Jesus, who humbled himself, to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The picture that can animate us, the reset, is to get a picture of who Christ is, not just in his humiliation, but in fact that God the Father then exalted him. It's the picture of the risen Christ right now reigning in heaven that then leads Paul to say in verse 12, therefore, and give us the passage we've got. So let's net it down. Christ, fully God, condescends to become incarnate as a man. Not just to become incarnate as a man, not just to live, not just to suffer all we suffer, but to die on a cross for your and my sins. And the story doesn't stop there. That's verses 5 to 8. But then verses 9 to 11, God raises Christ from the dead in the Easter event, brings Christ physically, really, humanly back to life in his new body, and then raises him up to heaven where he reigns right now, ruler and creator of everything, and where he will come again one day, the Bible promises us, to judge the living and the dead, to judge all people and all things. 
Your Christ is not dead. Your Christ is not a wimp. Your Christ is not someone who just sort of ran around and gave a bunch of good teachings. Our Christ is the exalted God who reigns over everything. And if we get that picture, it's going to reset our picture real quick, right? It's going to reset how we work things out because Paul goes from that and says, therefore, verse 12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, what does that mean? Quite simply, it means that living the Christian life that we live, having received the grace we have received, is a big, serious deal. We are following the God of the universe. We are living in light of grace and forgiveness received from Jesus Christ, who died for us, who rose, who reigns, and will reign forever. That is no small thing. Now, make no mistake about what Paul's saying, and verse 13 doesn't let you. We do nothing in terms of working out our salvation to earn our salvation. That is all a gift of God by grace. What we do is we live out what has already been given to us. And Paul says, do that in fear and trembling. And what's amazingly interesting is the very first way he says we might do that is what? Verse 14. The very first thing that the Holy Spirit, inspiring Paul, puts in his mind to say, how would you work out your salvation in fear and trembling? Is about this question of grumbling and complaining and arguing and disputing. The very first thing Paul can tell us in the Holy Spirit is, get your attitude different. Approach things differently. So how do you stop grumbling? Look at Jesus. If the sin of complaining and grumbling at its root has a humility problem that we are looking at ourselves and thinking we're a big deal, the antidote has the exact opposite thing. Look at Jesus and realize that he's the really big deal. Reset the story. Get a different picture. This is, in fact, exactly what happened at Habitat for Humanity. We're all complaining, grumbling, cold, And Jim Long sits us all down and says, guys, guys, don't you realize why this is happening? Let me explain to you what the neighborhood's trying to do here. The point of Sandtown is to bless this neighborhood. The point of Habitat for Humanity is not for our good, but it is for the good of the people here. They have turned the warehouse over to locals. Of course it's not going well. What did you expect? But that's not the point. We are not the point here. The point is to serve the people of this neighborhood we've decided to serve. And when the picture got recast, suddenly we went, oh, I get it. Now, I'm still cold. You know, I still wish I had some lumber here, but I'm not suddenly grumbling and complaining because the picture changed. I understood the bigger picture of it. Likewise, Paul says, get a picture of who Jesus is. Get a picture of the grace you've received. Get a picture of what Jesus will do. And suddenly, the grumble's not such a big deal. Now understand as well what we're not saying. We are not saying, and if you hear me saying this, you're not catching what I'm trying to say yet. We're not saying stuff it. We're not saying just keep your mouth shut, keep it internalized, get madder and madder and madder until you finally just go postal on somebody. Because if you're doing that, you're still grumbling. You're just grumbling to yourself. What we're talking about is not internalizing your anger with all the, I, I think the psychiatrists are probably right, that that does have really bad effects on you. What we're talking about is having a different picture of the world and of Christ and of ourselves such that the anger and the grumbling and the frustration melts away in the light, as the hymn says, of his glory and grace. 
Why do we grumble? Because we're really not very humble. How can we fix it? Look at Jesus Christ. What would it mean if we did? Well, there are three things you can quickly draw out of this passage. First, look at verse 15. We would be remarkably countercultural. So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. Wouldn't it be amazing if that's how God described us? Wouldn't it be amazing to be that type of person? Now, their world was no different than ours. People complained, people grumbled. It was probably even a more hostile situation for people who wanted to live out of Christ than ours is. And Paul says, you will be a shining star. I mean, think about this. You know this. You know the folks that you see them coming, and you know they're a chronic bellyacher. The last thing you want to do is be around them. They don't want to listen to you. They don't want to do anything other than unload on you. So you duck. Imagine the life and the ministry and the, and the ability you would have to be this. Well, Paul suddenly thinks of somebody who illustrates this. Now, one of the curiosities about this passage is Paul suddenly starts talking about Timothy. And if you read all of Paul's letters, he always leaves that kind of stuff for the end, the travel arrangements, the people to greet, all the, all the individual names and stuff goes at the end. But suddenly in Philippians, right in the dang middle of the letter, he starts talking about Timothy. Why? Well, let's look at who Timothy is. Verse 20, I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. Timothy gotten it. Timothy had a picture of Christ that was so overwhelming that there was no one like him, that he could shine like a star in the middle of his generation. And you and I could be the same if we'd get the same picture and let it take root in our hearts and lives. Second thing, verse 16, we can have a secure faith to the end. Look at what Paul says. As you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ, that's Paul's terminology for judgment day when Christ comes back, that I did not run or labor for nothing. In other words, when Christ comes back and judges every person, the Philippians are going to pass the test. People will look at Paul and say, you didn't waste your time there in Philippi. One of the many fruits of the Spirit is the attitude and the approach with which we take to life. And Paul says, in the day that comes, you will be validated because this picture of Christ that has controlled you, as he has saved you, it has worked its way out in your life. The faith that has saved you will be shown to be true. And then thirdly, we can rejoice even in trouble. Listen to verses 17 and 18. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, a drink offering in the Old Testament, you would take it, you would pour it out on the ground or on a sacrifice, and you would never get it back. You didn't consume it. And Paul says, even if I, in other words, my blood, in other words, my life, is being poured out right now, Paul, remember, writes this in prison thinking he will be released at times confident, but not really knowing. Possibly he will be killed, even maybe before they receive this letter. And he's able to say, even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. 
Paul is no Pollyanna here. He understands the stakes. He understands the risk. We grumble about our job because it's hard. Paul was going to die for his. We complain about traffic or weather or difficulty. Paul was chained to a guard, wondering when the trial would come and if he would be killed for it. And he was able to say, we can rejoice in the midst of anything. Why? Because he had such a picture of the risen and exalted Christ as the Lord and Savior that everything else paled by comparison. And there's another example of that. It brings to mind Epaphroditus, their envoy to him. And he says, I'm sending him back to you. He almost died. There are very few like him who've got such a picture of the risen, exalted Christ that it can change everything about who they are and change everything about who they live, how they live. So let me ask you the question. There are two pictures by which you could live your life. You could live your life with a picture that has yourself in the center, one where it's all about us. If you live it that way, you are almost guaranteed to grumble and complain when the world doesn't think as much of you as you think of you. Or we can live our lives with a picture that has Jesus Christ, the risen and exalted Lord, in the center of everything. And if so, we can't continue to grumble and complain and dispute and argue in the light of what he has done for us. So as we pray, let me ask you to pray with me that God would put in front of our minds and hearts and spirits a picture of Jesus that would change us and motivate us.